Thanks for joining us for this week's message. At First Baptist, we exist to love God, love people, and make disciples. We hope you find yourselves blessed, challenged, and encouraged by this week's message. And for more information, you can follow us on social media or visit us at fbcrockhill.org. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Let's go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is a United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Mansour is standing on a roof in Ramadi, and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position next to him at his feet. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, Kill the Americans! As Monsor and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Monsor in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, but if he does, his two teammates lying at his feet will surely die. Monsor yells, Grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward, chest first, onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsor is dead. His two teammates lying at his feet receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsoor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsoor's High School in Garden Grove, California built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsoor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident insignia that the SEALs wear dominates the 50-yard line. January 2019, North Island, California, just outside of San Diego, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. I was just in San Diego last August. This ship is sitting in the harbor. This is Monsor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship, named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, 
said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Monsor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But in today's culture, a lot of people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. After all, it was written down by religious people. And we know religious people tend to embellish things. Not only that, it's got miracles in it, like a resurrection. How many people in this room have ever seen someone rise from the dead after you knew they were dead for at least 36 hours? Yeah, none of us. Why? Because it doesn't happen. Yet if you're, you're a Christian, you have to believe something none of us have ever seen. How rational is that? Well, I actually think it's quite easy to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes, and if the answer to these four questions is yes, then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. Now that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yeah. That is actually from our TV show, which is on Wednesday nights on DirecTV channel 378. If you don't have DirecTV, it's on Roku. How many people have Roku? Does anyone have Roku in here? Okay, good. Roku. Look for NRB TV on Roku. That's National Religious Broadcasters. If you don't have DirecTV and you don't have Roku, it's on this new technology sweeping Rock Hill right now. It's called the Internet. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, if you go to our website right there, crossexamine.org, at that time, you can see the show. Uh, right now, we're going through the Book of Romans, uh, verse by verse, on that program. And then we're on radio every Saturday morning, although that's podcasted, so you can listen to it anytime you want. It's called the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. Actually, it's twice a week. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity, and we cross-examine ideas against it. In fact... Uh, Pastor Steve was just talking about Jay Richards, who was here yesterday and the day before. We did a, uh, a couple of shows with Jay that you can hear this coming week uh, if you listen to it. And he's a brilliant guy. You don't want to miss those programs. Uh, now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. And this is going to serve as our outline here today. As Pastor Steve said, we're just going to cover point one today. Tonight, we're going to cover point two, and then we're going to take your questions Actually, Steve said there was going to be Q&A tonight. That's actually not true. Instead of Q&A, I think we're going to do all Q, no A. Okay? So everyone gets to ask a question, takes all the pressure off me. All right? All right. No. We'll do a Q&A tonight, all right? But why are these the four questions? Well, first question, does truth exist? Why is that important? Because you hear people saying there's no truth, or I got my truth, or you have your truth, or all truth is relative. Well, if there's no truth, Christianity can't be true, right? Of course, if there's no truth, atheism can't be true either. Now, of course, there's truth, ladies and gentlemen. Why? 
Well, look, if there was no truth, would you ever go to school? Would you ever read a book? Would you ever be able to catch someone in a lie if there was no truth? I mean, lies presuppose truth, don't they? So we're going to deal with that question first. Second question, does God exist? Christianity can't be true if there's no God. Tonight, I hope to show you that God really does exist. We're going to look at three arguments for the existence of God tonight. These arguments are in the Bible, but you don't need the Bible to know them. In fact, people knew there was a God long before there was a Bible. You don't need the Bible to know that God exists. It gives you more information, but you can establish that there's a creator God, a designer God, a moral God without any reference to any religious work. We'll do that tonight. The third question is, are miracles possible? Christianity can't be true if there's no miracles, if they don't occur. Although none of us have seen a resurrection, tonight we're going to see that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible even atheists are admitting the evidence for. We'll see that tonight. Then the key question, is the New Testament true, particularly with regard to the resurrection? Because if the resurrection occurred, game over, Christianity's true. Of course, if it didn't occur, game over, it's false. You might as well sleep in on Sunday and do what you want the rest of the week because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, Christianity's false. And the Apostle Paul even said that in his first letter to the church at Corinth. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. Do you realize Christianity is a religious worldview that you can investigate and discover whether or not it's true? It's not just someone's philosophy you have to take on faith. No, you can investigate this and see if it really happened. Now, some of you are probably wondering, well, Frank, why would you even try and get evidence? Aren't we supposed to just have blind faith? No, 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 a thousand times no. In fact, the scriptures themselves tell us not to have blind faith, to always have answers. In fact, here's the way Peter put it. I'm just going to show you one passage here. He said, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey, all right? But we're supposed to give evidence as to why this is true, so I'd like to start right now by talking about truth itself. Does truth exist? Are you guys ready to go? Look, I know it's early, but are you guys ready to go? All right. Now, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, oh, come on. If he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. You can't handle the truth. That's not how he said it. Here's how he said it. All right, let's try it again. I want the truth. Now that felt better, didn't it? Didn't you always want to do that while Pastor Steve was up here? You can't handle There's a lot of people that seem to can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative. Well, if you don't get anything outside of what we talk about here this morning or even tonight, what we're going to talk about here in the next five minutes, just to introduce this to you, I think is the most important thinking skill I've ever learned. And to show you what a dimwit I was, I was 33 years old, I already had a master's degree, and I did not know what I'm about to tell you right now. And it's so simple. You know why I didn't know it? Because I never had a course in logic. How many people have had a, a, a formal course in logic? 
Can you see your hands, please? Hold your hands up. You see these people with their hands up, ladies and gentlemen? These are the homeschoolers. All right? Right here. We used to teach logic in public school a long time ago. We don't do it anymore. And that's a problem. Why? Because in public school, instead of teaching kids how to think, we're teaching them what to feel. That's a problem. Because, yes, emotions, emotions can make life fun, but logic makes life safe. And if you start believing illogical things, eventually you're going to smack up against reality and it's going to hurt. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is how to identify illogical statements. They're everywhere in our culture. And what we're going to do is apply one of the fundamental laws of logic. It's called the law of non-contradiction, which says that opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. For example, we can't both be in Rock Hill and not in Rock Hill at the same time and in the same sense, right? We're either here or we're not, but not both. God can't both exist and not exist at the same time and in the same sense. He either exists or he doesn't. It's one or the other. Yet there are people who are uttering claims out there which try and say both things can be true. And here's the easiest way of showing you this illogic that we see in our culture. If someone were to come up to you and give you the relativistic postmodern claim that says there is no truth, you should ask that person a question. What should the question be? Yeah, if somebody says there's no truth, you want to say, hey, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? Can everybody see that this is a self-defeating statement? What's a self-defeating statement? A self-defeating statement doesn't meet its own standard. This is a statement that claims to be true while at the same time claiming there are no truths. In other words, if the statement's true, it's false. You see, it's contradictory. This is a statement that violates the law of non-contradiction. It would be like if I said, I can't speak a word in English. What would you say? You know, you just used English to say it. Or it'd be like me saying, my parents had no kids that lived. Or my brother is an only child. Or everything I say is a lie. Some of you will get that tomorrow. Or all generalizations are false. Some of you will never get that one, right? These are known as self-defeating statements, and you've got to get good at identifying them because they're everywhere, and it's dangerous if you follow them. And here's the thinking skill you've got to get good at. What you want to do is you want to turn the claim on itself. Turn the claim on itself. So if someone says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself, and you simply ask the question, is that true? Okay? Now, you're going to amaze your friends with this. Why? Because you can correct them without being unkind. Because you're not making statements, you're asking questions. Right? Someone says there's no truth, you say, is that true? Okay, let's do a few more. Suppose someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth. If you turn the claim on itself, what question are you going to ask back? Yeah, is that an absolute truth? Or you might want to say, are you absolutely sure? Can everybody see that this is an absolute truth claim while at the same time claiming there are no absolute truths? 
it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. It's like saying all truth is relative. Somebody says that, what are you going to say? Is that a relative truth? No, it's an absolute truth, claiming that all truth is relative. Now, actually, in our culture, it's not said this way much anymore. You might want to look at this because it's said more this way, or at least it's uh, the sentiment is like this. There isn't the truth, only my truth. You know, you have your truth, I have my truth, you live your truth, I'll live my truth, we'll all get along. It sounds so right, doesn't it? It sounds so Oprah. It sounds like we all ought to believe this. There's just one big problem with it. It's logically self-defeating. Because if somebody says there isn't the truth, only my truth, and you turn the claim on itself, you just simply need to ask this. Is that just your truth or the truth? In other words, is the statement up here, the top statement, just your truth? In other words, it's just your opinion. Well, if it is, okay, but why should I believe it if it's just your opinion? But if you're saying the statement on top is the truth, can't you see the first part of this statement says there are no the truths? It's a the truth claim claiming there are no the truth claims. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. It defeats itself. I know this is very unpopular in our culture to say today, but I'm just going to say it anyway. There's no such thing as your truth. There's no such thing as my truth. There's just the truth. I mean, if you're going to say you have your own truth, you might as well say I have my own math. That's crazy. I mean, imagine if Pastor Steve said, hey, Frank, can you hang out today after service and uh, do some work? We need a lot of work done around here, and I can't get this congregation to help me at all. And so I say... Sure, what do you pay me? He says, well, look, I'll pay you $10 an hour. You just stay and you work as hard as you can and I'll pay you at the end of the day. Now, actually, Pastor Steve would never do this. He doesn't pay that much. All right, (laughs) well, let's say I I hung around and I actually worked into the night. And by the time I was done, he said, okay, what do I owe you? I said, okay, I worked 15 hours and you said it was $10 an hour, so you owe me $150,000. He's going to say, What? I don't know you 150,000 or 150 and I go oh no you, oh you don't understand pastor Steve I have my own math <laughs> What's he going to say you're crazy There's not my math or your math there's just math There's not my truth or your truth there's just truth Now I know some of your parents are going right now some sometimes kids bring math home and it's not my math I'm not talking about that all right <laughs> Okay <laughs> There's just math it's not mine or yours and there's just truth It's not mine or yours. Now, sometimes it isn't said this way, actually. In our culture, sometimes it's said this way. It's true for you, but not for me. Right? Well, Buddhism's true for you, but Christianity's true for me. Or Christianity's true for you, and Buddhism's true for me. They'll say that kind of thing, right? What do you say to that? This is also self-defeating. It's just a little bit more subtle. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, if you turn the claim on itself, you need to ask them, is that true for everybody? It's true for you, but not for me, true for everybody. Because the true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody. The true for you, but not for me, can't be true, because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know this can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you but not for me, say, sure, go try that the next time you get pulled over. 
Let's say you're going down Highway 77. You're going 100 miles an hour. Cop sees you, pulls you over, walks up to your car, knocks on the glass. You put the window down. He says, you were going 100. It's easy to get out of a ticket. You simply say, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. And you speed away. He can't give you a ticket if it's not true for you. No, if it's true you were going 100, that's true for all people at all times in all places when referring to you at that time. It's just true. By the way, if it's true Jesus rose from the dead, that's true for all people at all times in all places, whether you believe it or not. And if he didn't rise from the dead, that's also true, even if you believe it. In fact, I go to a lot of churches. I normally ask people, do you think Christianity is true? Most people will say yes, and then I'll ask, I'll ask them why. You know what answer I get more than any other? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You say, well, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. This is a very important distinction. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible's true. This is what we call apologetics. Doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It comes from a Greek word meaning to give a defense. From 1 Peter 3.15, we had it up there before. Giving reasons that something's true. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you got to go from belief that to belief in. You see, there's a difference. You can know something's true and still not assent to it. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? Man, you guys are sharp this morning. James said, even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you know that if God exists and Jesus and, and, and demons exist, and both those statements are true, that Jesus did rise from the dead and that demons do exist, that demons know that better than we do? That demons know that God exists better than we do? They do. But they don't trust in him. They don't want to trust in him. There's a difference between belief that and belief in. We know this in relationships too. When I first met my wife 38 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. That's the difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is just of the head. Belief in is not only of the head, it's of the heart. If you don't want to believe in Jesus, you don't have to. God's not going to force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. Now, most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind. After you know that Jesus is the Savior, trust in him. In other words, faith is not blind. Faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe that is true. Trusting in what you have good evidence to believe that is true. In fact, John, who wrote the biography we call the Gospel of John, the last verse of chapter 20, I'm paraphrasing it, he puts belief that and belief in in one verse. 
He says, these things were written down so that you may know that Jesus is the Savior, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Belief that and belief in. You need both. You ought to have evidence that it's true, and then you ought to trust in Jesus because he is the Savior. Now, how about this? You're going to hear this, especially if you go to university. There is no truth in anything but science. If someone says this, all you need to do is turn the claim on itself. What question are you going to ask back? What's that? Is science true? You're close. Yeah. Is that a scientific truth? Can you go in the laboratory and prove that claim? No, that's a philosophical claim. That's not a statement of science. That's a statement about science. In fact, you can't do science without philosophy. Science is built on philosophy. In fact, every academic discipline is built on philosophy. When you get a PhD, what does the PhD stand for? Not phenomenally dumb. It stands for philosophy of, doctorate in, physics, biology, history, whatever it is. You can't do science. You can't read the Bible without philosophy. Philosophy, right thinking about reality. You're bringing certain philosophical principles whenever you open the Bible to the text. In fact, in the book, um, both I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and another book we have on the book table back there called Stealing from God, we have a section in each one of those books. The title of the section is this. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Now, why am I saying that? Because all data needs to be gathered and all data needs to be interpreted. And who does that? Scientists do that. You ever wonder why you've gotten such conflicting advice on COVID? You say, oh, follow the science. Who's science? Look, if scientists have good data and they interpret it properly, you'll get good advice. If they have good data, don't interpret it properly, you're going to get bad advice. If they got bad data, it doesn't matter how they interpret it, you're going to get bad advice. If there's a political agenda, oh, that'll never happen. Have you noticed how many people have gotten rich pushing vaccines? Have you noticed how many people have gotten a lot of power by telling you what you could and couldn't do? Did you notice? Did you notice that strip clubs, abortion clinics, and casinos were open, but churches were closed? How did this happen? Because science got politicized. I still don't know what to believe half of what I read about COVID. Do you? Because it's so politicized now. People are being censored. Doctors are being censored. Epidemiologists from Stanford University are being censored. Some of these guys helped develop the vaccine, and they're being censored. And you're going, what? Because science doesn't, doesn't say anything. Scientists say things. The same thing is true when you look at the argument between the uh, intelligent design people and the evolutionists, do you realize everyone's looking at the same evidence? But they come to different conclusions on how to interpret it. Why? I think largely because they have different philosophical outlooks. There's only two possible ways we got here. Either somebody designed us or they didn't, and it happened all by natural forces. If you're an atheist, however... You will rule out intelligent forces or an intelligent agent, i.e. God, before you look at the evidence. Is it any wonder then you're always going to interpret the evidence as it's got to be a natural cause? 
Now, maybe they're right. I don't think they are. But if you rule out the only other possibility, it's no wonder you're always going to say it was a natural cause. Is that a result of the evidence or a result of their philosophical presupposition? It's a result of their philosophical presupposition. Remember, science doesn't say a word. Scientists say things. By the way, the most important things in life have nothing to do with science. I mean, science is wonderful. It's the reason we have the South. We couldn't have the South without air conditioning. Right? But science isn't the most important thing in life. Honey, do you love me? Yeah. Why? I don't know. Let's run an experiment. No! (laughs) Okay? Finally, this is a biggie. You hear this a lot. You ought not judge. In fact, Jesus said, don't judge. Why are you judging, you hypocrite? All right, first of all, what's the problem with the claim? Logically. Yeah, if somebody says you ought not judge, you might want to say, hey, isn't that a judgment? Or you might want to say to them, if we're not to judge, then why are you judging me for judging? Now, did Jesus say don't judge? Nope, never said it. Sure he did. He said it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This is the the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. All right, I know this is going to sound odd for just a minute, but it's true. Stick with me. There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think when Matthew was writing his biography that we call a gospel, he said, here's chapter 7, verse 1. No. Well, when, when were the chapter and verse divisions put in? About 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is important because it'd be really hard to find your way around this big series of books that we put under one binding that we call the Bible if you didn't have numbers. I mean, imagine if you didn't have numbers in your Bible, Pastor Steve didn't have numbers in his, and he got up here one Sunday and he just opened this big big book and he said, let's go about two-thirds of the way in, let's see if we can find the same spot. No, you wouldn't be able to do that, right? You need numbers to help you navigate the text. The problem is we tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can take it out and make it say whatever we want. You can't do that. You've got to read around the passage to see what's going on. And this is, well, actually some of you are going to hate me for this, but I don't care. I'm leaving tonight. I, I'll go home. This is why you should never say that Jeremiah 29.11 is a promise to you. You know Jeremiah 29.11. Oh, the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope in the future. This is on coffee mugs. This is on pillows. This is on posters. This is on birthday cards. This is on journals. Jeremiah 29.11, and it's not a promise to 21st century Christians. Who's that written to? Yes, it's not written to 21st century Christians. It's not a promise to 21st century Christians. I mean, it helps us understand who God is, but it's not a promise to us. Who's that a promise to? That's a promise to the exiles who were taken out of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian dictator, in 586 B.C. He took them to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, was telling those people that 70 years after that, he was going to prosper them and bring them back into the land. It's not a promise to us today. In fact, I always ask people who claim Jeremiah 29, 11 as if it's a promise to them, why don't you claim Jeremiah 44, 11? What's Jeremiah 44, 11? Jeremiah 44, 11 contains the promise that God told the exiles who went to Egypt in that exile. 
And he said, don't go to Egypt. You know what Jeremiah 44, 11 says? It says, I will destroy you in all Judah. You don't see that stitched into a pillow. You don't see that on a coffee mug. You don't see that in a birthday card. Happy birthday. I will destroy you in all Judah. That is so sweet, Grandma. Thank you so much. No, because we're taking stuff out of context. We can't do that. And the same thing is true with Matthew 7, 1. Does Jesus just say, judge not, and he stops right there? No, what does he say? He says, judge not, lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother, you hypocrite. Notice that's a judgment, you hypocrite. (laughs) Then he goes on to start talking about, don't cast your pearls before swine, which requires another series of judgments so this is not a command not to judge it's actually a command on how to judge he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye that involves making a judgment he's simply saying get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother so this is again not a command not to judge it's a command on how to judge in other words don't judge hypocritically if you've got that problem fix it then go help your brother But it would be completely ridiculous to say don't make judgments. Why? Number one, it's a judgment itself. Number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You made a hundred judgments this morning just getting up and getting over here. And now you're going, this was a bad judgment. This guy's crazy. Where's Pastor Steve? Come on. Everybody's making judgments. Atheists make judgments. What judgments do they make? Well, there's no God. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Bible's not telling the truth. There is no objective meaning or purpose to life. There is no afterlife. When you die, you're just going to become worm food. It's over. Have a nice day. These are all judgments. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? In fact, Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental there's a difference between making judgments and being judgmental who are the judgmental ones in his day pharisees and who were the pharisees they were the religious and political leaders of israel rome delegated much of the day-to-day lawmaking legal authority to the sanhedrin the jewish ruling council and many of the pharisees were on that group they were the lawmakers they were the politicians and jesus went after these people Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter 2, John chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 23. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus makes a whip, and he goes, and he jacks people up in the temple! Sweet and gentle Jesus did this? Yes! And then in John chapter 8, he's having an argument with these same Pharisee politicians. And he's right in the middle of the argument with them when he says, Your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. Can you imagine you have an argument with somebody and you stop right in the middle and you go, Your father is the devil. Never try that with a sibling, by the way. And then in Matthew 23, he really goes after these politician Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. 
Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. Can't we all get along, boys and girls? No! I came to bring a sword. It's going to divide mother and daughter, father and son. How often have you heard those passages talked about? Yet everyone in this room knows those passages are true because some of you are divided in your own family over Jesus. Jesus did not come to bring unity. He came to bring unity in the church, but we're divided from the world. So don't buy into this idea that Jesus was sweet and kind all the time. He wasn't. In fact, why did they kill him? They killed him, number one, because he claimed to be God. That was blasphemy to the Jews and sedition to the Romans. And number two, he spoke truth to power, people who didn't want their power taken away from them, like Caiaphas, the high priest. I think Caiaphas knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. What does Caiaphas say? It's better that one innocent man die than the whole nation perish. He didn't want to lose his power. He knew if Jesus succeeded, he was out of a job. Because the temple wouldn't matter much anymore when the temple is now contained in individual believers. You know where the temple is now? It's you. So don't buy into this idea you can't make judgments. You have to make judgments without being judgmental. By the way, I've noticed one other thing about judging. You ever notice that when you compliment somebody, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? You know, if you say to your best friend, I really love you. You're such a wonderful person. I wish I could be like you. You think your friend's going to say, well, who are you to judge? Nobody's going to say that, right? I've noticed that people don't have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. In fact, if you tell somebody something that's true and they get upset with you, you just help convict them. As Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. Few military people in here, and by the way, I was in the Navy for eight years, which stands for never again volunteer yourself. (laughs) Few military people in here, you always get more flack when you're over the target. If you tell somebody something that's true and they're shooting back at you, you're over the target. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. So we have to tell the truth. Because if we don't tell the truth, who will? That's how you love people. You tell them the truth. Now, we could spend a lot more time talking about these, but we don't have it. I just want to sum up this whole section with pointing this out. Can everyone see that this statement right here shoots itself? Can everybody see that? Which means relativism and postmodernism are false because they claim it's true that there is no truth. That's ridiculous. Tragically, many of our high schools and most of our universities have bought into postmodernism. Question, why would you ever send your young person to an indoctrination center where some professor is going to stand up and tell you the truth that there is no truth? And you're going to spend 40 or 50 grand a year to do that. 
This is one reason why we go to these indoctrination centers, as Pastor Steve said. In fact, Thursday night we'll be at Ohio State. Next week we'll be at two universities in Missouri and then Auburn. And we have a microphone set up for Q&A, as we'll do tonight. This happens to be a picture of an event we had at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And they love the Bible there about as much as the University of California at Berserkly does. And uh, we set the microphone up, and uh, if an atheist gets up to the microphone and it expresses any hostility at all, I'll normally ask them a question, and here's the question. It's a question I recommend you use with people who are not believers. The question is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, No! No, wait, I thought you claimed to be reasonable. How is it reasonable that you wouldn't believe something were true? Because it's not about reason. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun yet selfish and sinful things. However, over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in this room over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves. I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, not for long. If you do it your way, who's going to put up with you? It's all about you all the time. What kind of relationships are you going to have? No, if you want to get contentment, you've got to go straight through truth. And Jesus is the truth. So always ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If the person hesitates or says no, not a head problem. Heart problem. Tonight, we'll talk about what you can do with somebody with a heart problem. But at least ask the question. See where they're coming from. So, we know that truth exists. It is true that truth exists because it would be self-defeating to say it doesn't. You know what this means? That relativism and postmodernism are false because they claim it's true that there is no truth. So, the next question, is it true that God exists But we don't have time to do that here this morning. That's what we're going to save for tonight and take some of your questions. In the meantime, I want to point out, I did bring a number of books from you because I only live about 35 minutes from here in Weddington. So I brought some more books than I normally do. And by the way, I want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs we have there are going to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? (laughs) Just so you know. Now, actually... um, I want to send you the entire PowerPoint presentation, this PowerPoint presentation. I've only shown you about 20 slides today. The whole thing has 362, okay? Uh, We're not covering all that tonight either. But if you want it, and about several other presentations, including the two I did here this week uh, at the conference, just type, type the word evidence, no spaces, lowercase to this phone number, 1-855-909-0582. Text evidence to that phone number, and if you're watching online, you can do it as well, evidence to 1-855-909-0582, and I'll send you these PowerPoint presentations in a PDF format, all right? Now, the book we've been talking about is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Uh, That's uh, what we'll talk about tonight as well. The uh, next book, uh, and these go kind of in order of uh, publication, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I've noticed that when atheists claim there is no God, they are actually stealing aspects of reality that would only exist if God existed in order to say he doesn't exist. 
Now, I know Hollywood puts out a lot of garbage, but you would be shocked to learn that the top movie franchises of the past 50 years are all stolen from the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus. And that's what that book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God Do, will show you that your favorite movies are actually borrowing from the Christian story. And the heroes in these stories all do what Jesus does. And the ultimate hero of is, is, of course, Jesus himself. So if you know one, anyone who likes movies or a, a, a kid, we're kind of on Christmas, that might be a good book to get. The book we talked about a lot this weekend is called Correct Not Politically Correct about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. Particularly, this whole transgender issue has sort of taken over the cultural conversation, and it is logically contradictory and very dangerous. That book, by the way, does not have any Bible verses in it. This is not a biblical case against transgenderism or same-sex marriage. It's the logical, natural law, medical, common-sense case that both same-sex marriage and transgenderism are not good for individuals and they're not good for society. So if you have people struggling with that issue, you might want to get correct, not politically correct. Now, by the way, when we do come back tonight, We're going to see that someone actually did die for you. We're also going to see that uh, there's a lot more to the Michael Monsor story. So hopefully you can come back at 5 o'clock tonight. We're going to go through Does God Exist? And we'll take any questions that you have. Uh, And when we see, by the way, that someone did die for you, you're going to realize that life is about not just getting a whole bunch of stuff and then having your body eventually waste away till you die life is about building a kingdom to know God and to make him known